Continuing in our Acts series this morning, we're in Acts chapter 4. I've actually added two other readings, one from 2 Corinthians and then uh, one verse from the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at the business of loving God in deed and in truth, and particularly with the eye towards being generous with, with the time and the talents, the gifts that God has placed into our hands. Acts chapter 4, where are we? Verse 32 through 37, verse 32, hear God's holy word. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who also was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Turn over, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire chapter. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has been stirred, stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now Proverbs. Proverbs 19. One verse. It's kind of an astounding verse. 19 verse 17. Nineteen verse seventeen. 
One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Read that again. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a loving, a gracious, and a kind, and a giving God that you are. In and of ourselves, Lord, we are utterly destitute. We are more than paupers, Lord. Spiritually, morally, religiously, we are utterly bankrupt. But you are a God overflowing with liberality. You superabound, Lord, in mercy. And it's all bound up to us in Christ Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, that through the ministry of the word this morning, our grip would be less tight, Lord, on the world's goods and on this on this world itself, and that we would see everything that you have given us and everything that we are, Almighty God, we are to use as a love gift for the great love that you have given us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, the passage that we'll be walking through is Acts, Acts 4, that we just read, the 32 through 37. And we're going to walk through this, I, I would argue, somewhat thematically. And the very first thing that we learn generally is this particular section of Scripture addresses the business of uh, material goods or material wealth, money, that kind of thing. And I will tell you, um, the business of preaching about wealth or material goods, especially money, it, it's, it, it's almost a caricature of Protestants, Protestant ministers, <laughs> that they're always talking about money. I used to lovingly refer to it as the sheep shakedown that when you go into the church, the minister is going to shake you down for all of your cash. So for me, I'm very reluctant to introduce the subject of money, material wealth, anything like that in a sermon, unless it's expressly there. And it's here. And since my ministry is to be a minister of the word and to, ex- to, to explain and apply the word, I have to address it. But it makes me nervous. And I want to address the reason why talking about money, and particularly the giving of money as we're looking at here, which is why we read 2 Corinthians 9, and then we backed it up with the business of Proverbs, what we do with our wealth. God calls us to believe about him what he requires. God calls us to do the duties that he requires. And one of those duties here will be the distribution of our material wealth. So when we hear that, immediately we think, oh no, some strange things are going to happen. And I want to mention a little bit, particularly from the preacher's end, why we are reluctant to even hear a truth like this. This subject is so open to abuse. It's open to abuse by the minister, by the man preaching, and it's open to abuse by the people receiving. Both can get the idea of wealth and distribution of wealth. Uh, They can get it wrong, and they can use it wrongly, and they can use it sinfully. And I mentioned that money is we are so prone to make money our idol 
And so one of the things that preachers, if they are false preachers, charlatans, hirelings, they can do is they can preach a lot about money. And they're, they're less prone to do what we see here, preaching on the relief of the poor, which is what we find here. The people are relieving poor brothers and sisters. And most often, when you turn on whatever channel it is, and the guy's talking about money for the hundredth time, he's not talking about relieving poor um, people. What is he usually talking about? Enriching the rich pastor. And so within him, he can be covetous. He can be a hireling. The Bible says those preachers that see their ministry as a way to enrich themselves, they have fallen into the error of what fellow? False prophet. You remember? Balaam. And they're depraved and they're deprived of the truth. And they will perish just like Korah in his rebellion. Korah said to Moses, who are you? You think you're the only guy that talks to God? We can talk to God. And obviously, God is implying that Korah was covetous. He was greedy. And what did God do to Korah? He swallowed him and all his stuff up. So when we hear ministers who are using, misusing the pulpit ministry, the Bible, even the gospel of Jesus as a way to enrich themselves, they're charlatans. I would run for the hill. So, so we are right to be nervous about that. But not only can the minister get it wrong, the people can get it wrong. There's a reason why I would argue churches that don't preach come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved of your sins, which is the essence of the gospel, and they preach rather, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be healthy and wealthy. There's a reason those churches are packed to the gills and you need a shoehorn to get another person in. Why? The people love it. The people want to be told, believe in Jesus and be wealthy. Because not only the flesh of the minister can be tempted unto idolatry with wealth, the congregant. The Lord Jesus Christ says, our lives, the significance of our life does not consist in what? The abundance, the superabundance of things. But he, wealth is so deceitful. Matthew chapter 13. Wealth is so deceitful. And what does wealth say to us? Oh, don't believe Pastor John. Don't even believe Jesus when he says life doesn't consist in an abundance of things. Life does consist in an abundance of things, says the flesh. What's that bumper sticker? The guy who dies with the most toys, what? Go ahead, finish it. Wins. Oh, that's not true. Oh, that's not true. That is not true at all. I've been at the funeral of people that were rich and died poor. You know what the difference is, a rich and poor man? The amount of shellac on the coffin. One guy has a poor coffin, the other guy has a rich coffin. And you take nothing with you. But our flesh says, oh no, acquire goods, acquire goods, acquire goods. But for the person that thinks that Jesus and the salvation offered to us is not forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, eternity in heaven, but it's wealth, what will that person hear at the end of his life? What does God say to the rich person in Luke chapter 12? You what? You fool. So when we come here, the unbeliever is constantly watching the church. And they're looking at the minister and they're looking at the people. Are these people in it for money? So we're right to be somewhat nervous when we hear, oh boy, how's the pastor going to shake us down for the money on this passage, right? I, I promise you, I'm not going to shake you down in this passage. This passage is, is not the enrichment of the minister. This passage is about loving brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ 
with our material goods and wealth and those kind of things. It has nothing to do with me or brothers in my calling. Now, so we learn God is talking about wealth. He does talk about it. What he says, we should be quick to, to, to believe and to obey. There's a few things that we see here in relationship to the obey part. You see, the, prior to this, the apostles and the, the other brothers and sisters, they're praying to be bold. And they pray to be bold to speak the name of Jesus before the, the opposers and enemies of Jesus. And so we learn principally that our God, our Father which art in heaven, is concerned with what we believe and what we say. He's concerned with what we believe and what we say. They're going forth and they're telling people, Jesus, is, he's died for our sins. And then they're especially keen to prove to these Jews that he's done what? He has risen from the dead on the third day. Beloved, we're, we're not... We're not worshiping a dead savior. We're not worshiping just some Old Testament prophet who died and was buried in his tomb like David. We are worshiping God come in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life. And he says, I take it up again. This is, the Christian faith is mysterious. It's not just a set of do's and don'ts. I understand that this passage is something of, of an imperative, a do this, a duty passage. Give of yourself to other believers. I get that but is built upon the, the, the divine indicative, what God in Christ has done. He's died for our sins. He's rose for our justification. And they are very keen to tell the world boldly, our Christ lives. And you see why they prayed and they needed God, the Holy Spirit's empowering, is because the Sanhedrin threatened them. You keep talking about the name of Jesus and you're going to meet your Jesus. You keep talking that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, you're going to a cross. And the Holy Spirit empowers them to say what? Yeah, we, we will pour out our lives like a drink offering. We're not afraid to die. We're not a, we don't count our lives dear, let alone things. We don't count our life dear. We exist to serve God. When we die, when the believer dies, what happens? All our, of our stuff gets distributed to our, our sons and daughters and our grandchildren and whoever else gets it at the goodwill, and we go to be with the Lord. See what I mean? So God is concerned with what we believe as Christians. God is concerned with what we say. and They're saying the gospel. But what we learn with the distribution of material wealth, monies, to poor Christians, God is concerned with what we do. Now, I know I was raised a Roman Catholic. This is not justification by faith plus works. And I know it's going to be, well, if you're saying what we do, I thought you were a Calvinist. I thought you believed in predestination, election, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, our persons, our beings, are justified before God, and underlying that statement, before God, our persons are reckoned as righteous before God by faith alone. Sola fide. In Christ alone. That's how we are justified. Read Romans 3, Romans 4, right? Justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's our persons. But what we're seeing here is that our faith is justified or proven true before ourselves and before other people by our good works. So the, I know this is the debate between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant. Are you justified by faith alone? Or are you justified by faith plus works? 
the way that we reconcile Paul and James, James 2, 14 through 26, is this. Our persons are justified by faith alone. Our faith is always justified by our good works. God is concerned with what his people do. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 7 says this. You will know them by their what? The fruits. And he's talking about two classes of people. He says, beware of the Pharisee, beware of the Sadducee, beware of the religious formalist. Outwardly, they, 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 they do what? Oh, look. Oh, look. I'm so nice and tidy. And then inwardly, what? They're, 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 they're unclean tombs. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, you can't get good fruit from a thorn bush. You'll know them by their fruits. Our lives have great significance to us. Again, our persons justified by faith alone, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ alone is the merits. That's the gospel. That's why they're talking about his death and his resurrection. But we are proven genuine believers, always by our good works. So it's not that Protestants don't believe in good works. We do believe in good works. They're just not meritorious unto. They're, They're illustrative that we're believing. These believers are proving that they are true. Is it possible to be a false Christian? Can you be a person who says, oh yeah, Jesus. Jesus, yes, I believe in Jesus. And then to be an unbeliever, to say that you're a Christian and not be a Christian. My wife was away for a week in Colorado doing grandmother nanny duties. And so I was walking around town last week pushing a cart with my sneakers and black socks. It was pitiful. It's not good for husbands to be alone. And so when she came back, I took her out to Angelina's, one of our favorite restaurants, an Italian restaurant, fancy schmancy. And as we were going in, some fellows from PCC, I knew they were Christians, they were passing out tracks. And of course, I'm, yeah, come, come get me, come get me. And so they came with their track, their gospel track, and it looked like a $100 bill. It had a picture of Spurgeon. And so I'm like, come on, come on. And they came to me. And so I said, oh, I am a minister. And the two kids were very polite. And we talked, oh, I said, oh, look, there's Spurgeon, blah, 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 blah. And then the leader guy that was teaching them came up and said, oh, so you're a minister. And he said, where are you a minister? And they go to the campus church. I'm not picking on the campus church. There are brothers and sisters in the Lord. I love them. But sometimes when they hear the P word, Presbyterian, <laughs> they don't think we're Christians. <laughs> so I said, I pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church. And so he said, okay, okay, pastor. He said, okay, let's do this. I have, I've been stabbed in the back and I have three seconds to live. How do I go to heaven? He wanted me to give him the gospel. And I said, oh, you want me to give you the gospel? He said, well, I don't know you. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend you. I said, no, I, I take no offense. The church is filled with people who are born in the church, raised in the church, say they're Christians. What's the gospel? And I said, the wages of sin is, is death. The free offer of God is eternal life. For God so loved the world, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And, the, and, the, and, the, and he said, what's sin? And I said, 1 John 3, 4. And then I gave him the catechism. He said, what's that? I said, that's the catechism. Said, that's right, beloved. That's right. So Christians are known by what we profess. But that profession, you, you could get a parrot to give the gospel. But what shows us that we're real? that we really are joined to Jesus. What does Jesus say? The preeminent mark of a true Christian is. Preeminent. Not that you're a Calvinist, not that you're super duper smart, 
not any, what's the preeminent mark? That you love the brothers. Beware when Christians are like, what kind of Christian are you? You're a Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist? (laughs) Beware. We are called to love the brothers. We read our secondary standard. To love all brothers. Brothers in Zimbabwe, brothers in China, brothers of different sizes and stripes. We love the brethren. And I used as my title from 1 John, I think chapter 3, to love them, not just love you, man, be warm and well fed, love you, man. But if you see your brother who is hungry and you have extra food, what? You feed him. You don't say, if the guy is hungry, your brother is hungry, and you have extra food, you have extra beans in your pot. You don't say, I'll pray for you, man. What do you say? (laughs) There. By that. That's how we reconcile Paul. That's how we reconcile James. That's what we're looking at here. God is concerned with what we believe. God is concerned with what we say. And God is concerned with what we do. And I'm just going to say something. These brothers and sisters helping brothers and sisters with material relief. I, I want you to think of this. On the last day, Matthew chapter 25, there's a judgment day coming. We're all going to die. When Christ comes back, there's going to be judgment day. We're going to be raised from the dead, and there's going to be two lines before him. What will the Lord Jesus Christ present to all of us on that day? This, this, these things will be, these are being recorded. Often, mostly, we don't recognize. We have a poor brother or sister, a needy brother and sister. We help them, and we forget about it, or we should. Christ doesn't forget about it. It's all written down. And someday you're going to hear what? Well done. You gave a cup of cold water to your brother and said, when did I do that? Oh no, I, I took note of it. Come. you. Like, this pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. It blesses the church. I would argue it woos the enemy. You can't really beat, a, well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit for a person to be converted. You can't theologically argue someone into the kingdom. Right? Try this. Your enemy, who's suffering and needy, try this. Rather than beating their head over, over the head with a Bible and proving how smart you are, if they need a cup of cold water, go to your enemy and do what? Here's a cup of cold water. For Christ's sake. Oh, watch. Watch. You beat them up with the Bible and show how super-duper theologically smart you are, what do they think? What a pain in the neck. You help them or people they love when they're hurting for Christ's sake, with a cup of cold water, a coat, a kind word, what do they think? You can't talk bad about that person. These things are platforms for us to live out the faith that we see. So that's really the bigger theme. It's not a sheep shakedown. It's a motivation to the sheep to live like people that love the Lord Jesus um, Christ. And so we're learning one of the very practical ways that we express our love for God in our love for our brothers and sisters is by using the gifts that he's put into our hands. And yes, it's material wealth here. Some people had extra houses or extra lands. It's material wealth. But it might not be material wealth. Let's say that you, you're a handyman and there's a, there's a widow in the, in the church and her soffits are falling down. And you go over to her house one day, you look up and the soffits are falling down. And she's a widow and you're a handyman. What would be an expression for you 
for her. Um, okay, I'll be over on Monday and I'm going to fix those. Or you have enough wealth to hire the handyman. That's one way where we love God in Christ and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ in deed and in truth, as John says. That's what's going on. One of the ways that, in addition, one of the ways that we learn, human beings learn, are two ways. Precept and practice. And we have four grandsons. And the little ones are, they're all fun, but the little, littler ones are, are, are fun because you're, you're, you're teaching them, say this, say that, and then they're showing them how to do it. We taught our first grandson, I taught him um, what the word kick was and how to kick. So here's what it is, kick. And then I kicked my leg and then he's kick. And then I took a soccer ball and I took his foot and I kicked the soccer ball. So we learn human beings by precept and by practice, by word and by example. That's this passage. That's this passage. This passage says, here is what God wants us as his children to think about our wealth. It's not for us to hoard up. It's for us to use for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the precept. That's the word. Now, here's the real life practice. Didn't your folks do this to you? Your your parents taught you, here, here's what to do. And then they went ahead and did it. They taught you how to use the vacuum or something like that. And here's how you do it. God does this. In our passage, we have a positive example of how to use our wealth for Christ's sake. And then in chapter 5, we have a negative example. Here's how to do it. Here's what to do. Here's how to do it. Here's what not to do. So the person that we have that's a positive example is Barnabas. God says to us essentially here, use your wealth for the glory of Christ, for the benefit of brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, here's a real life example. There's a real human being that did it, Barnabas. He had an extra tract of land. He sold it. He gave the proceeds to the poor people. Here's how to do it. So essentially, this is, a, this is an exhortation, not be like Daniel, be like Barnabas. But here, the scripture says in many places, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or, or um, Hebrews chapter 13, imitate the brothers. Imitate their faith. We, we do this. Um, we learn by watching people around us, especially people we love, and we do what they tell us is right, and we, we shun from they, what they tell us is wrong, and how to do it. And so we're, we're to look at Barnabas and say, well, how did Barnabas do it? He's a son of encouragement, and, and this is how to do it. And then likewise, next week, if we come to next week, we have a negative example of what not to imitate, and it was Ananias and Sapphira. So if... if if Barnabas was imitating Christ, imitate Barnabas. If, if Ananias and Sapphira were imitating Satan, don't imitate them. So one is an honorable use of our wealth for Christ's sake, and one is a dishonorable use for Christ, uh, a dishonoring of Christ, um, which is Ananias and Sapphira. So that's it thematically. Then we have the examples. Now look at verse 32 with me, please. Some commentators come here and say, well, the essence of this little section that we're reading really is summed up in verse 32, that the church held everything in common. There are some people that argue, I think wrongly, that this is teaching a form of Christian communism or Christian communalism. 
from this passage. The church held everything in common. They didn't consider anything their own. And they say, there you go. That's why capitalism is wrong. That's why socialism or communism is right. That's wrong. This is free. This is voluntary. Communism is forced. That's why when people want to go communist, they lie to you. And then they're going to get you to go communist with a gun. And the only way you cannot be a communist, sadly, is with, an, is with another gun. Communism is forced <laughs> generosity. We are stealing from you and we're giving it to someone else. That, that is theft. This is not Christian communism. This is not Christian communalism. Look in Acts chapter 5, verse 4. So Acts chapter 5, verse 4 says what? Peter says what? Through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The property was yours. So this is... Acts 4.32 is not in contradiction with Acts 5.4. This is not denying personal property. That's the first thing we need to understand. When you come here say, oh, this is just communism. The early church, were, they were communists. No, they were not. They were not. Read the Bible in context. Peter affirms private property. Let me back up and say something. This, this deals with how we use our stuff. And guess what? Our stuff is not our stuff. Where do we get our stuff from? God. God gave us our stuff. And who's, who does it belong to ultimately? God. And so we back up here. I want to say something about private property because this is significant. There are three forms of law in the Old Testament. You have the moral law, you have the judicial law, and the ceremonial. Let's put the judicial and ceremonial aside. The moral law. The moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. One through, one through four deal with primarily with God. Five through ten is our duty towards man. The moral law is immutable. It doesn't change like our God. The Ten Commandments don't change. The Lord Jesus Christ comes along in the, in the, in the New Testament and essentially summarizes the moral law under two heads, which are what? Which is what? Love God perfectly and love man perfectly. That does not change. In the, in the new heavens and the new earth, when we're dead and in heaven, we're going to keep the moral law. So the moral law does not change. So there are not, there's ten commandments. There's not nine commandments, eight commandments. There's ten commandments. So not only does the Bible say that, that private property still exists, this doesn't deny private property, but private property, for you to have a theft necessitates private property. So the Eighth Commandment says what? Thou shalt not what? Steal. So since the moral law is, is, is immutable, it's unchangeable, you have to have private property. In addition, when it says everything is held in common, it has to be understood in a right sense because if this is, in, is, is denying one of the unchangeable moral laws of the Ten Commandments, you deny not only the Eighth, but you deny what other commandment? The tenth. You can't covet something that belongs to someone else if everything belongs to you because I'd be driving off in my neighbor's truck, right? Because it would belong to me. So let's be good Bereans. So when someone says, oh, yes, no, you've got to give everybody all your stuff. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes on that one. Let's just read the Bible. So this is not... This is not a Christian communism. This is free. Communism is forced. And that's why I read first the second Corinthians chapter nine. These people say, I want to give this. I have this extra tract of land. I'm not using it. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to give it to the poor. Does that make sense? 
So our God doesn't change. The moral law doesn't change. What we're looking at is a particular time, a particular church under a particular set of circumstances using their wealth at a particular time. Is it teaching us principally certain things? Yes, but it's very particular. And I'm going to argue that pretty soon this church is about to be persecuted and the only thing that they're going to carry away from Jerusalem is the clothes on their backs. And so why hoard stuff that you can't take with you anyways? Hoarding is a sin, but it's also stupid. Um, Why don't I bring it in here? This particular church is giving away all of their goods or or their goods for the, the relief of their poor brothers and sisters. They're doing it in response to the Holy Spirit empowering them based on what has just happened in the prior passage, which is what? The Sanhedrin has threatened uh, Apostle Peter and Apostle John. From this chapter onward, the persecution of the Christian church is going to ratchet up. And by the time you get to to Acts 8, I'm thinking of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, 8, 9, chapter 11, the Christians in Jerusalem are going to be thrown into the crucible and so it is a sin to hoard. We've been given things to give away. It's more blessed to, to give than to receive. Beloved, we're, we are pilgrims. The Bible calls the Christians in James chapter 1. We are the diaspora. We are the diaspora. We're, and diaspora is a compound word in Greek, diaspora. Spora is seed. We're the scattered. And we say we're just pilgrims. What's that song we sing? We're just a passing through. We're just a passing through. Sometimes... We sing that little ditty. We're just a passing through. And we're busy <laughs> building that kingdom. Like, we're not passing through. I'm building it here and now. I'm building this thing out of kryptonite. Oh, blood. No, no. Now you can build, we can build whatever we're going to build. You can get a big old pile. But as a Christian, we're just a passing through. We're a pilgrim. You got a backpack on your back. And you can the first time I went backpacking, we used to backpack off of Kangamangas Highway. I'm from Massachusetts, Kangamangas uh, Highways in New Hampshire, the White Mountains. Us teenage kids never went backpacking. So what we did is we loaded up canned goods um, with Schlitz on the outside side. <laughs> so canned goods. So you, you, you hike with canned goods. And canned goods weigh about, what, 300 pounds on your back. And after you backpack with 300 pounds on your back, you think, well, that was stupid. But we live like that. We live like that. I'm going to chunk stuff in my back. But you're a pilgrim. And what persecution does for the Christian church is it lets us let go of our stuff in our heads, in our hearts. Persecution will make us stand loose to the world's goods. This is the 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Watch someone when they get ready to die. They're not going over their their billfold. They're not going over their check sheet. They're not going over their list of stuff. They're fixing to die. It, they get, their hand gets looser on stuff don't, and they start talking about loving the kids loving people, loving Jesus am I right? persecution will make us let go of stuff that's what's going on here the church is getting ready to be persecuted and so, and so they're praying the Holy Spirit's filling them and they're letting go of their stuff because pretty soon they're just going to walk away from Jerusalem with what they have on their backs so it's very important for us what's going on now, right now, you think, well, interesting little sermon. Giving our things to help relieve poor people. Interesting, interesting. That ain't going to happen. I will tell you when it would happen. We are 
Miss Pelosi went to wherever she went this week, and some people were saying cavalierly, oh, I guess the Chinese were going to have World War III. Oh, ooh, let's not even talk about that. If you had World War, real World War III, if you had real World War III, we would be this. We would be doing this. So you need some food? Here. You need, you need clothes? And you're hearing the rockets come over? Here. That's this. No one wants to sign up for persecution. We, we're, we're all averse to pain. But God in his infinite mercy, oh, he uses, what does the Bible say? Everything works to our good. This works to our good. It conforms us into the image of Jesus. Otherwise, we will not let that go. It's mine, 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 mine. That's what little kids do. Little kids are selfish little critters. And we're selfish little critters, even as Christians. And the Lord comes along and says, I'm going to, let you, I'm going to make you generous. You can't make me generous. Yes, I can. And he makes them generous. And so it, it'll not only make us let go of the world's goods, but it will make us cling to Christ. The, the, the generosity of the Christian church here, we really see... Let me jump back a couple of instances. At Pentecost, what was the church doing when the Holy Spirit came down and filled them? What were they doing? You remember? In Pentecost, they were doing what? They were praying. They were praying. James says, you don't have because you don't what? You don't ask. Now, we, I could write sermons on prayer. I could write studies on prayer. But praying is way harder than writing a sermon on praying. Is it not? If I asked you, how long did you pray? Did you pray today? How many minutes did you pray? How about this week? Pat, walk over your week. Was it every, every day you devoted an hour to worshiping God on your knees? Did you do that? No, I know the answer. We, we read our 50-second like, uh, devotional thing, and then we give a 20-second, God, let us thank him for this food, and then off we go. And we think, where's the power? How come I'm not living for Jesus? How come we don't look... Ra- this, this passage is radical Christianity. This is radical. You would look and go, this is radical. My, fa- my, my brother-in-law, my sister's younger brother, my, sister's, my younger sister married a guy from um, Germany. And when she was getting married, um, she was trying to tell her friend, uh, who was a German, what kind of Christian I am. He sa- and she said, oh, he's a born-again and so the, the German said to me, radical, yeah, radical, yeah. I said, yeah, radical, radical, yeah. I believe in Christ. What we believe, that the second person of the Godhead became man and died for our sins and rose again, that's radical. That is radical. This is radical. They pray. The Holy Spirit comes down in a prayer meeting and does what for them? Empowers them to live for Christ empowers them to minister or to serve. That's what they do. With, with, with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, essentially what happens? The gospel goes where? From Jerusalem, where? Everywhere. Everywhere. The four corners of the earth. Everywhere. The Holy Spirit comes down in a prayer meeting, fills the Christians to, to, to be bold, to proclaim the gospel, and to live out the faith that they say. That was, the, that was Pentecost. What happened just prior to this passage? Prayer meeting. Prayer meeting. They have a prayer meeting. The Sanhedrin says, we're going to kill you. They, they, they let the apostles go. The apostles go back to the church. The church does what? We need to pray. 
This is what the church does now. We need to start a militia. <laughs> no, no, we do not. I know there are Christians that do this. We are not that kind of Christian. We do not start militias. We are sheep. We're doves. We're gentle. The, the people that get to carry the swords are people in the military or cops. <laughs> if you're not that, self-defense, I get that. But we, we're not starting a militia. What the church does when we're being opposed is we drop to our knees and we do what? Oh, God. Oh, God, preserve your people. Oh, God, thank you, you're sovereign. Oh, God, make us bold. And what does God do? This section is not so much on people giving of their wealth to poor people. It is that, obviously. But really, this is an expression of verse 31. Look at verse 31. When they prayed, the place they had gathered was shaken, and they, look at your, look at your Bibles. And they were all what? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, depending on the church you were raised in or your denominational affiliation, when you, you hear the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you, you think various things. The great mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues or affecting miracles. You know what the great mark of being filled with the Spirit of God is? Is love. It's love. It's great love to God. Great love to Christ. And great love to Christ's people. It's love. It's love in word and deed. I know people think, well, oh, Pastor John, you're going to quote First John chapter 4, 1 through 10. You're such a weenie. God is love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am going to quote that. God is love. And the children of God are known to be children of God by what? By their love. When we're filled in the prayer meeting, what are they doing? Oh, God, we love you. Oh, God, we rely upon you. Jesus, glorify your name. And then what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're, cons- they're absorbed with the presence of God. It's the word of God that, that governs them. One of the reasons I'm so weak or we're so anemic or we're, we're not as powerful as we should be is because we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. We're filled with what? Me, 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 <laughs> me. We're filled with self. Me, 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 me. Climb into our heads. And what are we thinking about? I got to do this. I got to, got to, got to, got to, got to, got to. It's me. Where's the power? Well, it's, it's, you're filled with you or filled with sin. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another thing that we're filled with rather than the spirit. The world. The world. I do little projects around the house. I do grass and plants and stuff. I came into church this morning on the Lord's Day. Oh, I'm so happy it's the Lord's Day. And I'm trying to worship. I'm going to do the planting and I'm going to do the... the (laughs) And I said, Holy Spirit, my head and my heart are filled with stuff, lawful stuff, but still stuff. Here's another benefit of persecution. We're not filled with self. We're not filled with stuff. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables, 
And this is how God, God, desi- God designs the, the body of Christ, the church, according to his own wisdom. To some Christians, he gives a little bit more of the world's goods. To other Christians, he gives a little bit less of the world's goods. And it's by his design. So there's a, there's a mutual solidarity. We need one another. The person with needs the person without. The person without needs the person with. It's Christian helping Christian. Should we help unbelievers? Yes. This is a Galatians chapter 6. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love our enemies. But we're especially to love Christians. And this is need. So these are Christians helping other Christians for their need. Many years ago, I lost a church member when they asked the deacons to give them money for a, a vacation to North Carolina. And so he said, doesn't the church help widows? So they do help widows when they have a, they don't have a pharmacy bill that they can't pay or there's a medical bill they can't pay, but they don't pay for you to go to Smoky Mountains. This isn't paying for the Smoky Mountains. So if you go to another Christian saying, hey, I would like Angelina's, to, could you give me some money to go to Angelina's? It's kind of pricey. This isn't helping people buy a third car or go to the Smoky Mountains or have a fancy dinner at Angelina's. What is this to help? What did the deacons do in Acts chapter 6? They gave to the widows what? A daily bowl of beans. If we have brothers and sisters that we know that are naked, they don't have enough clothing for them or their kids or they're hungry, and we have those things. The love of Christ compels us. Compels us. And I want to end with this. The great motivation for us to give away that, the giveaway, what's the great motivation? The cross. The cross is the great motive. I mentioned we're, we're, we're paupers. God so loved the world. He gave us his only begotten son. Riches of riches of riches of riches that we would give him away. And God has given us a little bit of things that for Christ's sake would show Christ that we love him and show the world that we love them. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.